Hello, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a look at popular songs of the past and dives into their history, their meaning, or any other things that might be of interest surrounding those songs. My name is Claude Call, so I've got that going for me, which is nice. If you want to get in touch with me, probably the best way is to find me on Twitter at HowGoodItIsPod, or you can leave a comment on the website, HowGoodItIs.com, where you can find some additional trivia, some follow-ups, or other stuff that I found interesting, and don't forget to check out and follow the show's Facebook page, because that's where the cool kids hang out. It's over at Facebook.com slash HowGoodItIsPod. Oh, before I start, I need to make a correction to an earlier show a couple of weeks ago. I said that Maynard Ferguson had covered the song MacArthur Park in 1993, and frankly, I goofed with that date. But I heard from a friend of mine who converted her significant other into a kind of fan of the show during a long road trip, and he caught the error right away. So yeah, Billy, if you're still experiencing the fan version of Stockholm Syndrome with this podcast, thanks for catching my mistake. Maynard Ferguson actually recorded that song in 1970. And while I'm doing the shout-outs... Let me also give a shout out to my friend and friend of the podcast, Doug Miles. Okay, he's got a radio program going on down in uh, Sarasota, Florida. And he's got some podcasts going on. And if you check out the website, howgooditis.com, there was a post that I did during the week, which gave you a link to a couple of uh, Christmas shows that Doug did. Uh, Doug is a big fan of the big band sound, and he did some really cool stuff, so... Head on over to his site and have a listen, okay? So go to howgooditis.com and check out what he's got, okay? Hey, remember a couple of weeks ago when I talked about how cool it was to have that opening snare shot on Bob Dylan's uh, Like a Rolling Stone? Here's another good one. The Doors' first hit, Light My Fire, spent three weeks at the top of the Billboard Hot 100 chart during the summer of 1967, and it was also the first number one hit for their label, Electro Records. And a year later, it actually re-entered the chart when Jose Feliciano released his cover of the song, which topped out at number three. Although it was pretty much the band's signature song, lead singer Jim Morrison left behind notebooks that suggested he didn't much like it as a song, and he really disliked performing it. Whether this is a reaction to having to sing the same song over and over again, or whether he resented the fact that so much of the band's popularity came from a song for which he didn't have a lot of writing input, well, that's anyone's guess. But the fact is, while all four of the Doors share the writing credits on their songs, most of Light My Fire was written by guitarist Robbie Krieger. Morrison did do most of the writing for the band's debut album, but he did need a little bit of help, and he asked for Krieger's assistance. According to an interview he did with Uncut Magazine, when Krieger asked what he should write about, Morrison told him, something universal which won't disappear two years from now, something that people can interpret themselves. So Krieger said to himself he'd write about the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. He picked fire because he loved the Rolling Stones song, Play With Fire, and that's how that came about. But the song had a folk kind of flavor when he first came up with the melody and the lyrics. And it wasn't until Morrison wrote the second verse with the line about the funeral pyre that it started to take shape. For those of you who don't know, a funeral pyre is a platform that's used for ceremonial cremation. Think about what they did with Darth Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi, where they torched his body. That's a pyre. So the use of the word pyre also made for a nice tie-in with the fire element, in addition to being a more interesting rhyme than most of the other lines in the song. Then Ray Manzarek came up with the organ introduction, and drummer John Densmore contributed the overall rhythm of the song. 
You know, Light My Fire was The Doors' first hit, but it wasn't their first single. That honor goes to Break On Through, which only made it to number 123 on the charts. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, yeah. And now that you know that they went to a number 123, you know that they do count stuff well below 100 over at Billboard. Anyway, for what it's worth, I think the recording was a little bit ahead of its time, and that's why it didn't do very well. Plus, it had those edits in it where the word high gets cut out several times in the bridge. So lyrically, it doesn't make a ton of sense. And you know, the funny thing is, though, I heard it that way for so long that the first time I heard the line, she gets high in its entirety, I bumped on it a little bit because it sounded kind of weird. But the bottom line is, until Light My Fire caught people's attention, the Doors were little more than an underground band of wannabe beat poets setting their stuff to music and playing clubs in the Los Angeles area. So when Light My Fire became a hit, they really had a hard time comprehending the magnitude of its success. In his book, also titled Light My Fire, Ray Manzarek tells the story of getting his first royalty check for the single, which came to $50,000. He wrote that when he saw the check, he reasoned, wow, $12,500 each is pretty good. Then somebody pointed out that the check was made out specifically to him, not to the band. $50,000 was his cut of the first royalty check. Like so many other songs I've discussed on this show, Light My Fire wasn't even supposed to be a single, but there were radio stations, especially in the L.A. area, which got requests from listeners who heard it on the album. Elektra finally decided to release a shorter version. Elektra founder uh, Jazz Holman told Mojo Magazine in an interview that nobody knew how to cut the song down from its original seven-minute length. Finally, Holman told producer Paul Rothschild to figure it out. Rothschild basically chopped out the guitar solos and all this organ business here, and he brought it in under three minutes. According to Holman, everybody had a fit about the edits, except for Jim Morrison, who said, Imagine a kid in Minneapolis hearing even the cut version over the radio. It's going to turn his head around. So they released the short version, and the song got enough airplay that it began to climb the charts. And the B-side of that 45? It's the uncut long version. And because the single caught on, the album also began to sell, eventually making it to number two. The album that prevented it from making it to the top? Come on, it was the summer of 1967. Of course, it was the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Incidentally, The Doors didn't have a bass player, but there is some bass on the record. Raymond Zarek played the song's bass line with his left hand on a Fender Rhodes piano bass while performing the other keyboard parts on a Vox Continental using his right hand but there are some genuine bass guitar notes in there. Now, figuring it out who played it, that's a little bit of a mystery because they didn't keep good records on session musicians then. Carol Kay says it was her and that the doors weren't present for the session, just a few guys in the uh, recording booth. But there are also multiple sources saying that Rothschild brought in Larry Nectel from the Wrecking Crew to just double the piano bass with his own guitar. This was the last song that Jim Morrison played in front of an audience. During a show at the warehouse in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, on December 12, 1970, while performing this song, Morrison apparently had a breakdown on stage. Midway through the set, he smashed the microphone into the stage floor repeatedly until the platform beneath was damaged, and then he sat down and he refused to perform for the remainder of the show. That was basically the end of the foursome's touring days, even though they still had yet to release the L.A. Woman album. And coincidentally, it was also the last song that The Doors played live as a trio, because they did continue without Morrison after his death. 
Their final performance took place at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles on September 10, 1972. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. This show, I don't know, it either the recording went quickly or the show is short or maybe a little bit of both. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also check out and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. And finally, you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where I throw in a few extra bits for you. Next time around, we're going to discover how good it is to listen to some Christmas tunes, because right now my holiday spirit kind of stinks, and I need some uplifting, all right? Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you then. Bye.